But I've got to say, every time that Pastor Davini does that, I get a little nervous that none of you are going to want those books. <laughs> so I sort of look down and make sure they all go. So, uh, so I appreciate you for, for being gracious and wondering what you're going to do with them now that you have them. Uh, I will say one thing about the blues book. You should at least try to see the cover of the blues book because the publisher, I had nothing to do with this, the publisher put on the cover of the blues book a man with a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> I was so proud of that cover. <laughs> I could not wait to give a copy to Dr. Tague, the president of Lancaster Bible College. Uh, yes, Luther would have sung that hymn many, or Bonifer would have sung that hymn many times. He was a good German Lutheran. In fact, I think Bonifer may have out-Luthered Luther, if that <laughs> is possible. So tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time to get to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never met him before, we're going to make an introduction. If you have met him before or spent some time with him, then hopefully you'll pick up something tonight that may deepen your friendship or your relationship with him. I find Bonifer to be an incredibly refreshing person that I just sort of dip into. Uh, back when I was working on my uh, doctoral dissertation, I, I, I really wrote on Edwards because I really appreciated Edwards. And one of the things I saw in folks that they end up spending so much time, they have to spend so much time with their dissertation subject, that they almost come to loathe that which they first loved. And so in order to help me from making that transition with Edwards, I started a practice of Sunday mornings, getting up a little bit, or we didn't have kids then, so it was a much quieter house, but getting up a little early on Sunday mornings and just reading an Edwards sermon and not trying to get quotes out of it, not trying to think about how it can connect with what I was currently writing on, just to read it and let him, as it were, minister to me through his printed sermon. Well, I had Edwards as my so-called Sunday theologian for quite a few years, and I gave him up for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer became my Sunday theologian a few years ago, and I've stayed with Bonhoeffer. And I find him to be so refreshing because of his perspective on what discipleship looks like for him in the 20th century world, but for us in the 21st century world. Now let me give you an example of this. I'm going to recommend three different books as we move along tonight. And one is a great way to get introduced to him. It's just simply called A Year with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, some very wise editor rooted through all of Bonhoeffer's writings and put them together in uh, 365 bite-sized chunks. And it just so happens that I'll read to you August 1st. So this is not, didn't try to root through here and cherry pick the best one. This is today's reading. For most people, and he's in prison, by the way, while he's writing this, it's one of his prison letters, and that's a Nazi prison, of course, and his imprisonment ends with his execution. So this is one of his many prison letters. For most people, the compulsory abandonment of planning for the future 
means that they are forced back into living just for the moment, irresponsibly, frivolously, or resignedly. Some few dream longingly of better times to come and try to forget the present. We find both these courses equally impossible. That is, the one who sort of lives in a wish-dream world, waiting for the present to pass and some rosy future to make itself appear. That's one perspective. And the other perspective is the one who gives up on the future altogether and just lives in the moment. We find both these equally impossible. And there remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find, of living every day as if it were our last, and yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. He quotes Jeremiah 32. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought in this, bought in this land, proclaims Jeremiah in chapter 32. And if you know anything about Jeremiah chapter 32, you, you would know why Boniface is drawn to it at this moment. At this point, Jeremiah is thrown into prison because he said one too many prophecy that angered one too many people. And so he finds himself in prison. And the Babylonians are bearing down on Israel and about to overrun it at any moment. And one of his relatives, who's a Levite, who can only sell property to a blood relative, is trying to offload property as much as he can. And he comes to Jeremiah and he says, will you buy my land? Now, nobody in their right mind would buy a piece of land with an enemy bearing down. You want liquid capital. You don't want land. But before his relative came to him, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord to Jeremiah was, a relative will come to you, and he will offer you the land, and you will buy the land. And so this relative comes to Jeremiah while he is in prison, while the Babylonians are breathing down their neck. And he buys a piece of property for so many grams of silver. And that is one big palpable word picture symbol that God will once again restore his people. That tumultuous times are coming like they had never seen before, but that God will restore his people. And one day in the future, people will buy and sell this land. One big object lesson. That's actually a better lesson that Jeremiah had to go through than Hosea. I always feel bad for Hosea, because Hosea's object lesson was go marry a, I'll use the word, harlot. If you have to marry a woman named Gomer, that's probably an indicator that this is not going to turn out all that well. Just a, just a helpful hint. Okay, back to Bonifer. So you can see why he's drawn to Jeremiah, because Bonifer's in prison. And, and the reality of the day is Nazi Germany. And in 1943, 1944, nobody was sure how this was going to turn out. We know how it turned out after the fact. But in 43, 44, nobody was sure where this was all going to go. And this is Bonifer. In paradoxical contrast to his prophecies of woe, just before the destruction of the holy city, Jeremiah was to buy land. It is a sign from God and a pledge of a fresh start in a great future 
just when all seems bleak. Thinking and acting for the sake of the coming generation, but being ready to go any day without fear or anxiety. Did you catch that? Thinking and acting for the sake of the coming generation, the long view, but being ready to go any day without fear or anxiety. That, in practice, is the spirit in which we are forced to live. It is not easy to be brave and keep the spirit alive, but it is imperative. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I wasn't cherry-picking there. That's the kind of thing you trip over every time you turn to Bonhoeffer. And I think it has to do with two things. It has to do with the person. Uh, This was a remarkable person. We'll walk through his life here in a little bit in a more systematic fashion, but let me just throw out some tidbits to you. He, He received his doctorate, and then he celebrated his 21st birthday. So this is a pretty remarkable young man. And after his first doctorate, he decided he should get a second doctorate. And in between those, he was a youth pastor. Now that's a remarkable record, don't you think? I mean, what do you do if you're 21 and you have a PhD? You go be a youth pastor, of course, that's what you do. So we're talking about a very gifted young man here. He dies in his 39th year. Now that's when most of us are just getting started, right? trying to learn from the mistakes of our misspent youth. He dies in his 39th year. And in those short 39 years, he leaves behind a literary legacy of 16 volumes and a life legacy that is almost second to none as we look back over the 20th century. So the first reason why I think Bonifer is so compelling is because just the sheer metal of the person that we're looking at. But the second reason I think that Bonifer is compelling is because of the circumstances in which he was put. Now, he had crucial ideas worked out long before the Nazis came onto the scene or long before the true Nazi program revealed itself. But it was in those crucial years of the rise of the Third Reich that those ideas of Bonifer were crystallized and formed and given as a legacy to the church. So we're looking at a person here of remarkable character, remarkable depth, incredible intellect, incredible desire, above all, to serve God and serve his church. And we're looking at a person who was put into an extreme circumstance that, like the proverbial diamond, that is formed under intense pressure, that Bonifer, in that situation of pressure that you and I, I don't think we can relate to, I know I can, I'll at least speak for myself, that he comes out of that with an incredible legacy for the church. Let me first introduce you to Bonifer in 1939. It's July. Well, I know it's August. It's August 1st. And of course, what else would you be doing on an August Sunday evening than listening to a church history lecture? It's your idea to bring me here in the summer, Joel. (laughs) You could have me anytime you want. I'm just down the road, but it's your idea. And the answer to that question is, of course it's a great time. It's always a great time. But let's put it in July. It's a hot 
summer day in July, and the steamship Bremen, the last steamship to leave Germany and land on an American shore, brings with it a passenger, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was invited there by his friend, Reinhold Niebuhr. Niebuhr is a professor at Union Seminary there in New York. This was Bonhoeffer's second trip to America. His first trip was nine years earlier. After he got those doctorates, he thought he needed to brush up on developments in American theology. So he received an appointment at the University of Berlin, but he was of some means. His family had some means. He always considered himself middle class, but he had a chauffeur growing up and they had a country house. I call myself middle class, and my chauffeur has yet to show up. I wait for him and wait for him, and our country house is out there somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. So he took a year off, came to America. This is in 1920, uh, I'm sorry, 1930-31. Comes to study American developments in theology, realizes there really aren't any. That's a joke. And decides instead he would have a good time. And you know what he does in, in the spring of 1931? He takes a road trip with two students, an American student and a French student, and they make a road trip from New York City to Mexico. Imagine, the little pup tents driving across the country. He was at Union one day walking across the bulletin board and churches do this, you know, they do this at the college. They put up needs for Sunday school teachers or needs for this or that at the ministry at the church. He sees a need for a, uh, a church in Harlem, a black church in Harlem. And he pulls it off and he goes and he spends that year, he spends the Sundays of that year at a black church in Harlem. And he goes back home in Germany with arms full of 78s of black spirituals. And it was there in 1931 that he was introduced for the first time to the problem of race. An issue that is going to come full bore in about four or five years in his homeland. But this is his second trip in 1939. Niebuhr invited him there to get him out of Nazi Germany. Niebuhr had cobbled together a lecture tour for him for the year 3940. And the idea was that somewhere along that lecture tour, a full-time teaching position would shake out. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most brilliant minds, theological minds Germany has to offer, would be saved from the Nazi regime and given safe haven in America. So he lands in July of 1939, and the moment he steps off the ship, he knew he made a mistake. He knew he was in the wrong place. In fact, he says, and he writes in his diary, I have refused to stay in America. And that night he writes a letter to Niebuhr, I made a mistake. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. Bonhoeffer felt like however bad it was going to get, they were going to come through this on the other side. And that because of the way the German national church, Luther's church, had given its allegiance had confessed its allegiance to the Nazi regime, Bonhoeffer realized that the church would need to be rebuilt and that he would more than likely have a role in rebuilding it. 
And how could he go back and rebuild it, having abandoned it at its hour of need? Well, steamships were shut off from going back to Germany. It took him a while, but he was able to book passage on a ship to London. And from there in London, he was able to get back to Germany. He was in New York for about a month. It was actually at the same moment the World's Fair was going on in New York City. And United States Navy boats were going back and forth in the harbor, sweeping for mines that were, un, that were thought to be planted there by German U-boats. This was a tense time. Bonifer knew full well what he was getting into when he went back. But he went back. And I think at that moment, what we see is not some adrenaline-charged decision. But at that moment, what we see is what is true of the man. We see one whose commitment runs so deep that he would give up a lecture tour in a democratic and free society, an ocean away from a war that was about to pour out this unimaginable horror on his homeland. On his way back, he goes through London. And when he stops in London, he meets up with his twin sister. Bonifer had a twin. Her name was Sabine. And her husband was Jewish. In 1938, Bonifer spent a year in London in 1936. He pastored a German congregation in London. And in 1938, through his London contacts, he was able to get her husband a job and get her and her husband, his twin sister and her husband, out of Germany into London. And so when the steamship took him back to London, he met with her. And there's a picture. It's my favorite picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, I have two favorite pictures. One, he has a cigarette in his mouth that's on par with the blues book. <laughs> Sorry, he's a German Lutheran. They think differently about that kind of thing. My, my favorite picture of him is in the backyard, nice little courtyard area, with his twin sister. And they're sitting there, and she has a fine string of pearls on and a, a lovely dress, and she's sitting there looking rather prim and proper and British. And he's sitting there, sort of leaning back, and he's got his, his three-piece suit on with the fob and the pocket watch. And he looks absolutely at peace. He looks absolutely at peace. And you'd have no idea, in looking at that picture, that he was about to say goodbye to his sister and walk into the maelstrom. Well, let's back up the story. I gave you a vignette of his idea and a vignette of his life. Let's work through his thought and his life a little bit more systematically. Bonifer was born in 1906. Just a few years ago, celebrated his 100th anniversary. He was born on February 4th, 1906. He was born into a large family. There were ten children. He had a twin sister. They were about in the middle of the order. This was a fascinating family. The father was a psychiatrist, psychologist 
at the University of Berlin and actually pioneered some brain research and had made quite a name for himself, not just in Berlin, but in European academic circles. And that name that his father made for himself would open up quite a few doors for young Dietrich as he made his way through uh, the academy himself. This was a fascinating family. They had a music conservatory in their house. And the kids would get together and write oratorios and symphonies for their parents' birthdays and anniversaries. <laughs> Did you hear that? What have you done for me lately? <laughs> Could you imagine? Father, mother, sit. We just, con- we just composed an oratorio for you. And they break off into an oratorio. Uh, Bonifer was uh, raised Lutheran, although there's no indication that piety ran all that deeply in his family. And so as an 11-year-old, he walks out into the family parlor just as they were about to move from there and sit down to their formal dinner, and he announces that I will be a theologian. Could you imagine, 11-year-old, I'm going to be a theologian. Well, it shocked the family because, like good Lutherans, they would go to church for the requisite holidays, but otherwise religion and piety didn't run all that deep in the Bonifer family. But Bonifer felt a call. I'll take questions after. Bonifer felt a call early on that God had a plan for his life to serve in his church. He went off to university, studied at Tübingen, and then he defended his doctoral thesis at Berlin. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, the fancy Latin title, Sanctorium Communio. And that is Latin for the communion of the saints. A wonderful line right in the Apostles' Creed that reminds us that we're all in this together. That great poem by John Donne, No man is an island. You ask for whom the bell tolls, the bell tolls for thee. We're all in this together. And that fundamentally, the definition of a Christian is a Christian in community. As a 21-year-old, Bonifer just landed on the theme, one of two themes that would come to dominate his life's work, community. Now we'll pick that story back up in 1937 and 1938. But Bonifer, as I said, what do you do if you're 21 years old and you have a PhD? Why, you go be a youth pastor, of course. And Bonifer was a bit adventurous. When he graduated with his undergraduate degree, his grandmother gave him a trip throughout Europe as a celebration. And so he spent a few months just traveling around through the Swiss Alps and then on down into Rome and all through Rome taking in the sights and then off back up into France. And then when he finally ran out of money, he went home and pursued his doctorate. Well, after he got his doctorate, he heard of an opening for a youth pastor position in Barcelona. It was a German congregation. There were a number of businesses, German businesses in Barcelona, and Bonifer went there as a youth pastor. And he became fascinated with bullfights. And he also became fascinated with reading Spanish literature in the original. Again, this is a remarkable person. 
Well, after the youth pastor gig, he knows that his calling is in the academy. So he goes back to Berlin and gets an appointment as a professor at Berlin, earned a second doctorate along the way, and before he takes up his position of teaching, he goes to America for the year, comes back to Berlin, and starts teaching. One of the things he loved to do, though, was take his students off for weekends to the beach. And they'd go up north to the beaches, or they'd travel even south to the beaches. There were a few uh, lakes in Hungary that Germans, even to this day, like to visit as tourists. They would go there. And he would spend these weekends with his students on the beach with a little record player that would be cranked up, and it would play those spirituals that he brought back with him from his time in Black Harlem. And they would talk about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Well, in 1935, Hitler rises to power. And on the day that Hitler makes his first national address, Dietrich Bonhoeffer got on the radio, too, to make an address. And his address was, it was cut off midway through. The censors had already begun their ways. And Bonhoeffer's uh, uh, speech was cut off midway through. But his speech in 1935 was that the Fuhrer, the leader, who does not have his people's, all of his people's best interests at heart, is not a leader, not a Fuhrer, but a dis-Fuhrer, a misleader. Now, to put this in some perspective, Winston Churchill was trying to convince the British Parliament up until 1939, that Hitler might be a problem. To just put that in some perspective. And Bonhoeffer, in 1935, recognizes what's going on here. By 1936, the German National Church, the Lutheran Church, had endorsed the Nazi party. Their church synod was held that year at Luther's church in Wittenberg. Bonifer was sitting in the back, and he said, uh, I forget the exact expression he uses, but it's something like in translation as post-mortem revolutions, which is to say Luther is spinning in his grave, because Luther is buried there up front in the alt- underneath the altar of the church at Wittenberg. And there at Wittenberg, Luther's church, the German Lutheran church endorsed the Nazi party. Bonifer and a number of others broke off and formed what was called the Confessing Church and wrote a fascinating document called the Barman, B-A-R-M-E-N for the city, the Barman Declaration, declaring that the church's allegiance is to Jesus Christ, not to an ideology, not to a political party, not to a cause, but to Jesus Christ. And they soon realized that they need to have a seminary. So by 1936, they established an underground seminary at the city of Finkenwalde, which at the time was in Germany, but is now as part of Poland, as part of the reparations of Germany after the war. And they appointed Bonifer, who had long since been on a Gestapo watch list, was removed, his license was taken away to teach and was kicked out of the University of Berlin, where his father was this legend of a professor. And they called Bonifer to be the professor at the seminary. And after about a year, Finkenwalde, was shut down by the Gestapo. And the next year, in 1938, reflecting on the time at Finkenwalde, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, we all talk about the cost of discipleship as his classic book, but he wrote this, and this is a very little book, this is smaller than some of mine. 
122 pages. Life together. Life together. Reflecting on the experience of these seminarians who had no idea what they were getting into. No idea what support they would have. No idea what future there would be for them. In 1937, Bonifer writes the Christmas letter. You know, deans, presidents, they have to do this. They have to write these end-of-the-year letters to get the giving in, you know. Bonifer says, well, let me tell you about the success of our seminary. Eight, nine, can't remember the number, of our students have been arrested. And they won't be able to return next time. And two that we sent out to churches have been arrested. And the donors that was supporting us, one of them was very wealthy, that Bonifer knew. And actually, when he went to visit her at one time, he met her niece, and she'll come into the story in a little bit. Our donors, their bank accounts have been seized. This is Bonifer's Christmas letter. And he ends it with, but our God is a powerful God, and we trust in God. This is remarkable. Well, in 38, he publishes The Cost of Discipleship, classic text on what it means to be a disciple, and he publishes Life Together. His seminary is shut down. They try to cobble students together at various places so Bonifer can go and meet with them. And this is pretty much his life up until 1943. And in 1941-42, Bonifer becomes involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Now let me put this into some context for you. Bonifer had two brothers-in-laws that were significantly placed in the German military. One was a colonel in the uh, intelligence unit of the German military. And there was a whole group within the German military that wanted to stage a coup in the German intelligence that wanted to stage a coup and remove Hitler from power. And they used Bonifer as a contact with his British contacts to get a message to uh, Bishop Bell of Chichester that they would have this support if they could get some support from England to stage this coup from within. And the message made its way to Churchill. It was discussed. If you've been to London, you can visit the war rooms there that are all underground. It was discussed in those war room cabinets with Churchill and his cabinet. And in the end, they decided to decline the offer that it was too risky. So this group of about a dozen or so decided that the only recourse was to put an end to Hitler. Now, Bonifer played no significant role in this group. He was not a military man. He did not have a military background. Bonifer's role, as far as I can tell, was pretty much a theological advisor to come along to them and say, God will forgive you for doing what you're about to do. And Bonifer, this was no easy decision for him to make. He wrestled with it. And he came to the conclusion that even this was wrong to the point where it damned his own soul. He felt he had no other option but to go this route. Well, three failed assassination attempts later, Hitler still lived. 
and there was always this sense of who was involved in the conspiracy, but given their, their prominent place, they couldn't just be roped into jail. But they were watched very closely. And one of the occasions, one of the families left the house for a week or so, and the Gestapo went into this house and literally ripped it apart. And sure enough, behind the plaster, plastered in, was a name and a list and all the details of the conspiracy and the conspirators. And there on the list was Bonifer. And so he was arrested. He was put in prison at Tegel in a six-by-nine cell. And from 1940, uh, get you the exact date here, from 1943 until the end of his life, he was a prisoner. For the first year at Tegel, and life actually was fairly good for Bonifer, being in a six-by-nine cell. His father had bribed the guards and was able to get in books and paper. And Bonifer wrote many letters and poems. He even wrote a novel while he was in prison. And it's this great novel about a grandmother and her grandson. And the church in town is absolutely liberal. And everybody's happy to go along with it because they're getting these feel-good messages, except the grandmother. And the grandson comes to spend the summer with her. She takes him to church and they're walking away from church and she turns, leans down to her son as they're walking home and she says, what did you think of the sermon? What did you think of the minister? What did you think of the church? And he said, oh, it was a fine church. It was a great service. You know, what's a grandson supposed to say? And the first page of the novel, Bonifer has the grandmother grab her grandson by the hand and look him in the eye and say, never, never accept a cheap imitation as a substitute for the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not the typical novel you would write, but that's the novel Dietrich Bonhoeffer was interested in writing. So in prison he writes a novel, he writes letters, and he was engaged. Remember that wealthy woman? And she had a niece, and Bonhoeffer got engaged to her. It's sort of like Jeremiah buying a piece of property, knowing that God will once again restore his people. Bonifer got engaged, I think, to show that he was trusting in God, that God would see the church through this. But he's in prison. In 1944 and 1945, he was moved to Berlin. And in the early months, uh, as he was moved to Berlin, that writing, that freedom, all that he had was cut off to a trickle. And so from the winter of 44 until the spring of 1945, all we have are three letters from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a Christmas poem. That's all we have. And at the very end, as it was clear that the Nazi regime was going to crumble, what, uh, what Hitler and the Gestapo did was systematically go through those political prisoners and have them executed. And Bonifer was on the list. And so, on uh, April 9th, 1945, at the concentration camp of Flossenburg, where Bonifer had been transferred just a few weeks prior, Dietrich Bonifer was hanged. And ten days later, that concentration camp was liberated. The sad part of all this is Maria had no idea, his fiance had no idea where he was. And she went to her father's home, or his father's home, 
and packed up some of Dietrich's clothes in a car and just rode all over Germany at different camps looking to see if she could hear word of if Dietrich Bonhoeffer was there or not. The family didn't know anything. The parents didn't know anything. Here's one of the most ironic moments of Bonhoeffer's life. His parents heard that there was going to be a, a, a mass for a German who was executed by the Nazis broadcast on the BBC that this mass was going to be held in Westminster Abbey and it was for a German. And so his parents thought they should listen in. So his parents tuned their radio to catch the BBC and it turns out that it was a mass led by Bishop Bell of Chichester for their son. And as they're sitting there listening to the radio, they're hearing for the first time that their son is in fact dead. This uh, life of Bonifer, 39 years old, just turned 39. I wish I had time to go on about his ideas, but let me just tell you two of his ideas that are key. One idea is discipleship. Bonifer writes the cost of discipleship to remind us that discipleship is costly. It's very hard, I think, in our age to shake out what are the cultural influences on our lives and what are the biblical influences in our lives. We become fairly numb to the way the culture shapes the way we think and how we act and what motivates the decisions that we make. And we forget that there are texts in the scripture <clears throat> that make some pretty serious demands of us. And that, in fact, if we were to live them, they don't make any sense at all. I like this coat. It's a nice coat. I wear it a lot. If Joel were to ask me for this coat, I've never seen him wear a coat. Maybe I should give it to him. But if he were to ask me for a coat, this coat... Not only would I have to give it to him, according to Matthew 5-7, to but I'd have to give him my shirt too. And that's a high ethic. And when somebody does something to us, oh, they're going to get it. We're going to lash out, and they're going to feel it. They're going to get our revenge. And Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek. Let them smite it too. This is an ethic that cuts across the grain and doesn't make any sense. And Bonifer says, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to take the Bible seriously. Not only in an age that lives differently, but especially in an age that lives differently. Discipleship. The second big term of Bonifer is community. We are in Christ in community. You know how Paul learned this first? Bonifer got the idea from Luther. Luther got the idea from Paul. That's how it works. 
You know how Paul got the idea? When Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus said to Paul, Why do you persecute me? And Paul stumbled onto an idea there of our union with Christ. That our identity fundamentally is as the body of Christ, as his body. Speaking of cultural influences, one thing we are as Americans, we are individuals. And individualism is an American ideal. And we are called into a community. The church's community. Now Bonifer says, don't think in the book, Life Together, don't think you waltz into this and everything's ha- rosy because we're all Christians, we all have the Holy Spirit, we all love each other. You know what Bonifer calls that? A wish dream. And then he says, the sooner you dispel that notion, the better off you are. We're going to be cranky. We're going to be difficult to get along with. We're going to be problematic. We're going to be grumpy from time to time. We're not perfect in this Christian community. But we're in this Christian community. And Bonifer says there's a lot of things we can do to help us. And the first thing he lands on is thankfulness. And stop and think about that. Grateful people recognize that other people do something for them. People are grateful because they recognize that they are dependent on somebody. Somebody meets a need that I can't meet. Somebody gives me something that I need and I don't have. And I say to that person, thank you. Gratitude can go a long way in cultivating this idea of community. So you can dip into any one of Bonifer's writings and you'll see these ideas of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be ready to go at this moment without any worry or anxiety, and yet recognize that we need to plan and build and engage for the future. That type of middle way thinking of discipleship, you'll find it everywhere, and you'll find community everywhere. So here we have a life and thought that I think makes Bonifer a worthwhile person to get to know. And if you don't meet him now, just wait. In a few years, you will. And won't you be embarrassed when you walk up to Dietrich Bonifer and you have to admit that you never read anything he wrote? <laughs> and he'll say, but it was even translated for you. So, so there's Dietrich Bonifer. Uh, is it all right for some questions? We have a few moments. I was told seven-ish. And there's no way I can miss that clock. (laughs) There it is.